Well, good morning, church. Man, that was awesome. Larry, if you can hear me, congratulations to you. Um, man, that was, that was phenomenal. Uh, well, my name is Jason Van Dorsen. I'm one of the pastors and elders on staff here at Reston Bible Church. It is uh, a joy to welcome you today, whether you're here with us in the room or joining us online. We're thrilled to be able to spend some time in the Word uh, together. We are in a uh, series, this will be part six of a series, we're walking through the book of Colossians. Uh, the book of Colossians, if you were to divide out the four chapters into broad categories, chapters one and two really deal with the supremacy of Christ in all things, and then chapters three and four deal with uh, our part in response to that, submission. So you have supremacy and submission. Today we're sort of turning the corner, we'll be looking at the first 17 verses of chapter three, we'll be looking at uh, our submission to Christ in terms of our identity. Uh, well, as we get started this morning, though, I do want to give you some big news from the Van Dorsten household. Uh, we, have, we have adopted a dog. <laughs> yep. Uh, the picture you see on the screen there, uh, yep, that is the culmination of three years of being worn down by my children. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and that's, that's Chance. Chance is a plot hound, P-L-O-T-T. It's a breed out of North Carolina, bred specifically to hunt uh, wild bear and boar. So uh, he came to us with the name Chance, and we decided it was a good name. We decided uh, to keep it. And the reason I liked his name is that three years ago when my children first brought up the topic of getting a dog, I said, no chance. Now, after they had worn me down significantly last December, I said, well, maybe there's a slim chance. Uh, when we got the dog, he was, uh, we rescued him from a, a high-kill shelter. He was starved, malnourished, so he was literally a slim chance when we got him. We've been taking good care of him, feeding him lots of meals, so he's getting to be a fat chance. A process that I have described as the plot thickens. Thank you very much. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, as we're into this thing, adjusting, making all the adjustments to having a new uh, thing trapped in the house with us, uh, my wife looks over at me and she says, Jason, are we dog people now? And I said, well, we don't, we don't want to be cat people for sure. So yeah, I guess, I guess we're dog people. Sorry, cat people. <laughs> Somebody booed. <laughs> uh, sorry. Uh, it struck me though, it is interesting, right? Like, how many ways we look for things to sort of categorize ourselves, categories to put ourselves in, whether we're dog people, cat people, uh, tea, coffee, Mac, PC, whatever. Uh, isn't it interesting uh, how we sort of innately look for things to rest our identity on? Categories in which to fit and belong. Uh, and we will take the, and, and those are sort of silly little examples, right? But, but it's no question, we'll take things uh, that were never meant to bear the weight of our identity, uh, and we will crush those things in an effort to build our lives on them, whether those are relationships or jobs or status, achievement, abilities, sexuality, race, gender, ethnicity. I mean, we've constructed whole modern philosophies uh, and movements described as identity politics and gender identity. Now, last week, we looked at the fact that we exist in a cultural context, and so we have to be able to discern uh, between worldly deceptive philosophies and what is from the Bible. 
We have to be able to discern between the voices of the world, the voice of the enemy, the voice of our own flesh, and the voice of Jesus. And that's why we must be people of the word. Uh, Because there are so many, many, many voices out there uh, today. You know, a traditional criticism of Christianity uh, is that Christians just want to convert people. And that's not a shameful thing. That's, that's true. We do want to convert people. We want to see people move from darkness to light. Uh, but let's be very clear. Uh, there are no neutral messages coming at us from culture, right? Everybody is trying to convert somebody in some way to something. But if your identity is not anchored in who Jesus Christ says you are, then you will be shaped or formed by whatever voice happens to be the loudest or whatever voice happens to have your ear the most. Consider the trend today that most companies no longer simply sell products, but they sell uh, causes. These are just my thoughts, but I think most cultural messaging today uh, has a very simple message, whether it's implicit or explicit, Uh, And it's that there are bad groups of people and there are good groups of people. uh, And you want to be this kind of person, right? You want to be the good kind of person. And so you need to purchase this product, subscribe to this view, uphold this creed, buy into this cause, join this movement. Why is that? Why is that the the tactic? It's because if I, as an individual, uh, as a company, as a movement, as an organization, as a political party as a religion, a social class, or an ethnicity, uh, if I can shape, form, or alter your identity, I have influence and authority over you, even if you don't realize it. I then have the power to direct your values, your resources, and your worship. I can tell you what the, quote, real problem is, and then I can offer solutions. I can offer you saviors. And all you need to do is follow me. So there are no neutral messages coming at us from culture. It's all, it's all preaching, right? It's not all presenting the same gospel. It's not all leading to the same savior, uh, but it is all preaching. Uh, Jim said it well last week. Pastor Jim pointed out that a primary tactic of the enemy and of our flesh and of the fallen world is to use shreds of truth in order to hook us on false solutions. And more often than not, I think those shreds of truth are intended to shape or reshape your identity and who you think you ought to be. And so as we move through the text today, Colossians 3, 1 through 17, my point is simply this. Only Jesus Christ has the true right, power, and authority to bestow, form, or shape your identity. Let's get into the text. So we're going to read Colossians chapter 3. We're going to start with verses 1 through 4. It says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. Father, would you bless our time in your word this morning? 
Uh, Father, would you reveal to ourselves uh, who it is you want us to be and help us, Father, be informed by your word, empowered uh, by your spirit as we seek to submit our identities to you. I pray that you would uh, be glorified as we uh, digest and chew on your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So there in Colossians uh, 3, 1 through 4, those first four verses, uh, I think uh, give us four foundational realities that frame human identity. And those are simply that God is, that Jesus is at his right hand, the world is not my home, and Jesus is my life. Uh, In verse 1, it says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, at the right hand of God. This is a positional context, I would say. This is, it helps us get our navigational bearings. The right hand of God, that phrase indicates some things for us about Jesus. Uh, It demonstrates that, uh, or demonstrates for us his power and authority, um, if you look at Ephesians 1, 19 through 21, um, similar verse, uh, to be at someone's right hand, biblically speaking, is to indicate that they possess equal rank, power, authority, honor as the one to whom uh, they're sitting next to. And so Paul continues to reinforce here Jesus's godness, uh, that he is supreme and in authority over all things. So right hand of God indicates for us uh, his power and authority. It also indicates for us his messianic fulfillment. Psalm 110 is what's known as a messianic psalm, which uh, Jesus actually quotes in Matthew twenty-two forty-four, And the psalm simply says that it is God's Christ. It is his Messiah, the deliverer, who sits in power at God's right hand. Right hand of God also indicates for us uh, Jesus' ongoing love and favor. Romans 8, 31 through 34 and Hebrews 7, 25 show us that it is from the right hand of God that Jesus intercedes continually for us. His work is secure as far as our salvation goes, but his ongoing active love and care for us continues from that position at the right hand of God. And so uh, verse 1 is our ultimate positional starting point, right? In light of who Jesus is, in light of where he is, we see where we are as well. Uh, He is in ultimate authority and we are subordinate. He is king, we are subjects. He is shepherd, we are sheep. He is our north star. He is our set point of reference. Jesus Christ is the starting point to discovering human identity. Human identity is not meant to be something that we author for ourselves by ourselves. Verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above then and not on things that are of uh, the earth. Another positional context. We have what is above and what is uh, below. And with this ultimate context, Paul's showing us, look, you live in a new reality. And so we are to propel our minds toward that which affirms the reality of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done, and where he is now. And so Paul says, have this mindset, have this attitude, have this disposition, Uh, engage in this way of thinking and feeling 
and doing, all centered around Jesus. He says, set your minds, set. Set is to seek, to pursue, to go after, to determine. It is not a passive process. He says, set your minds. Uh, The normative uh, pattern I, I find in scripture is that the mind stands as the watchman of the soul. I think you see this Uh, In Genesis 3 with Eve, I think you see it with King David and Bathsheba. When something enters the mind and is considered, if the mind approves it, the heart and the affections yearn for it, the hands or the will then seek to go and take uh, that thing. But it is the mind that will approve and disapprove and set the other human faculties into motion or uh, hold them back. So set your mind on things uh, above Now, things above doesn't mean, uh, maybe you've heard the phrase, pie-in-the-sky Christianity, right? Where you're so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. That's not what Paul means there. Uh, To set your mind on things above means to live your life now in light of these massive, overarching realities of who Jesus is and who we are in relation to him. Now, uh, certainly as we're considering identity and we're considering all this, there's an individual and personal aspect to it. Uh, but there's also, and I think maybe primarily, a corporate aspect. Paul is speaking uh, in the plural. In the ESV, it's set your minds. Uh, in the JVD, it would say y'all, right? Y'all set y'all's minds collectively uh, on the things that are above. It's both a personal and a corporate consideration of identity and direction. Verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul is repeating a statement that he used uh, in uh, the previous chapter, verse 20 of chapter 2, where he said, you died to the world. So we are dead to the world. By virtue of what Christ has done, the fallen and broken world system no longer rules or defines who I am. Only Jesus now has the authority to reign and rule over who I am. Not the world and not me. He says, and your life is hidden in Christ. It's hidden. So what that indicates immediately for us is that all of this, all of this around us, This is not your life. What you see in the mirror, what you see on your social media feed, in your bank account, in your driveway, on your resume, in your bedroom, none of that is your life. Not anymore. Those are the old ways of living, which you have now died to if you are hidden in Christ. And whereas in the garden, in Genesis 3, as mankind fell... We hid from God. Uh, Christ has now taken us and hidden us within himself. He is the better Adam. He is the better ark. He is the rock, our refuge, our shield. Our life is protected and secured in him. Paul's summary uh, of this whole concept you can find in Galatians 2.20 where he says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Your life is hidden in 
Christ. And so this world is not your life. And how we steward our time here should reflect that. Verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so Paul gives us here a future hope. A future hope. Your life is hidden, but it will appear. It will appear with Christ, and you will appear with him. This invisible hope of glory, believed on by faith, will become visible at some point to everyone. At some point, Jesus Christ returns, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess what you have seen in faith this whole time. Everyone around you will see why you have been living the way you have been living. They'll see why you have been living the way Paul is about to prescribe that we live, if indeed we have been living that way. And so in addition to the joyful anticipation of Christ's return, this future hope should give us an immense compassion toward the unbeliever and the mocker and the doubter and the skeptic, the seeker, the backslider, the ex-evangelical. At some point, all that is hidden in Christ will be made incontrovertibly clear to everyone. And some will rejoice, others will mourn, some will be welcomed, and others will be commanded to depart. But until then, those who are called out to reflect him, to identify with him, uh, well, we have some practical application now. We have some marching orders that instruct us on how specifically to align our new life, to live out, through, uh, to live out our new identity while navigating this old, low world. So in these four verses, I think Paul is presenting to us, look, there is an old reality that you have passed away from, you've died to, and you've entered into this new reality in Christ that now forms and shapes and dictates every aspect of our identity. And our new identity is to be lived out in specific ways that reflect the one upon whom our identity rests. And so now Paul is going to give us an overview over these next several verses of the characteristics of what the old things are that we need to put off and what the new things are that we need to put on. So let's read verses 5 through 9. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So in verse 5, we're told to put these things to death. John Owen, who's a Puritan uh, author and pastor long ago, wrote a good little book called The Mortification of Sin. And he's got a very famous quote in there. Uh, that simply be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Sin is also not a neutral force. And so we can't treat that sin that is in our life uh, 
as though it were. Sin is constantly calling us to shape our lives around the things that are earthly and human, to bow down to those things instead of to God. Sin is always pulling us toward idolatry. And verse 6 says that because of this, God's wrath is coming. This is God's rightful anger at sin and sinners. This is a thing that, like our life, is now, for the most part, hidden. But another thing that will be revealed, and so there's a sober warning for us there. Only if your life is hidden in Christ will you escape that storm, will you be safe from his wrath. In verse 7, he points out that, look, you used to walk in all of this. You lived in these ways. You once found life in all of this, in sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, we have the tendency to look at those and say, ah, well, that's not me. Well, that one, uh, maybe. No, I'm not really that. Uh, he's saying no. It's a level, level playing field. Uh, don't think this doesn't apply to you. You have no moral high ground upon which to stand against your brothers and sisters. All y'all was sinning. In verse 8, he says, put these all away. Put them all away. Renounce, throw down, cast off that which entangles. Put off that which is old, which you walked uh, in before you were dead to the world before you were alive to Christ. Put this stuff off, he says, because it no longer reflects who you are in Jesus Christ. And so I find myself, what this tends to look like uh, in my life is me telling my heart, no heart, don't long for that thing. Don't want that, that's the old stuff. No mouth, like don't say that. Let Let me pull that back in because that's the old way of speaking. No hands, don't reach for that thing. That's, the old, that's, that's an old thing. I find that my uh, faculties are often much like Chance, my dog. Uh, because he is a hound, uh, walking him is an adventure because he will inexplicably, with no warning whatsoever, be going one way and then suddenly dart off the other way and then change his mind and go the other way. And so I'm constantly like, no chance, no, come back, come back. I've got to keep that booger on a leash uh, because if I don't, he's going to wander off, get lost, and starve again. Uh, And I find that it's very much the same way as my heart. My kids tell me to stop using them in sermon analogies. Now I've got to use the dog. (laughs) Now, we don't do that in accordance to the world standards. Paul addresses this at the end of the last chapter. Uh, in Colossians 2, 20 through 23, where he says, he says, if in Christ you died to the world, uh, why still submit to it uh, with its regulations? Don't do this, don't taste, don't touch. Uh, so in this process, um, we're not just giving lip service. We're not just modifying our behavior externally based on what man or society says we should or shouldn't do. Uh, we're not driven by the issues du jour of the world system, which again will hook us with shreds of truth, Uh, but lead us to false saviors. But we are to put away those things which no longer reflect who we are in Christ. Uh, And in verse 9, he says, do not uh, lie to each other. 
Do not lie to each other. We are made in God's image, which is a point that Paul is going to make in the next verse. And because of this, you can't lie to someone without also telling lies about God. There's no falsehood in God. He cannot lie. And so we are blatantly misrepresenting him as his image bearers when we tell lies. Uh, To lie to each other is to refuse to live out your identity in Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 10. So we're to put on, or sorry, put off. Don't lie to each other, seeing that you've put off the old self and its practices. Verse 10, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Put on the new self. Live from your new identity in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So that is being renewed, Paul says. That's an active, ongoing process of growth, sanctification, being made more and more and more like Jesus. Uh, We are being renewed in knowledge, Paul says, right? Uh, so it's not just something we're making up on our own. It's not something, it's not self-determination. It's in knowledge. And where do we get knowledge, revealed knowledge uh, of this God whom we are to reflect because we're in his image? Well, we get that knowledge from uh, the word of God. And so we are informed by the word uh, and empowered by his spirit. So we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. Now, probably you've, hopefully heard the term imago Dei, which means in the image of God. That's our core identity as human beings. You see it in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, that unique among creation, human beings are created specifically to reflect the image of the living God. It's intrinsic to who we are. Let's look at verse 11. Here, There is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. Jim said it well last week. He said, we are a single race with various ethnicities. And so we are to walk as such for the glory of God. All y'all together, we are Imago Dei. Uh, Pastor Jim did go into it some, but I want to consider again uh, from this verse the massive differences in culture and background and tradition represented in these groups here that Paul lists. There are a lot of dynamics here that are ripe for judgment, for disagreement, and for conflict based on racial and cultural identity based on social status, based on religious background. But Paul says, put it all down. He says, lay it all aside. This is the old self. These are the old ways of identifying yourself to each other. You need to live from the new self, that which has been remade, reformed, and re-identified in Christ. Now, does this mean that we should ignore or downplay our ethnic diversity, our cultural differences, 
or our social distinctions. I think within each of those things, uh, there are ways of legitimately reflecting the Imago Dei. And so I don't think this is a call to ignore or diminish those things as much as it is a call to not elevate them and worship them. These are no longer primary in how we identify ourselves or in how we view others. These distinctions are to fall into subjection before the unmatched authority of Jesus Christ. You are to lay this stuff down before the King Jesus. In your old life, this may have been foundational to how you identified yourself or interacted with others. Not so in this new life, Paul says, your new identity uh, in Christ. I wonder how this might read if it were written to RBC today. Here there is no Republican or Democrat, liberal, conservative, pro-mask or anti-mask, Sterling Park or Falls Church, but Christ is all and is in all. Lay it down. All ethno-cultural enmity and human distinctions of superiority or inferiority due to class, vocation, social standing, education, privilege, race, power, or ethnicity. It all bows before the Lord Jesus Christ. God in his love, in his wisdom, and in his mercy takes people from all backgrounds and allows them to believe in faith upon Jesus. And then he binds them together in a single unified family. This is the reality that we are to live out. This, this is the way. Paul now gives us more practical instruction um, as we make that work. He's given us some stuff to put off, now some things to put on. Let's read the next couple of verses, 12 and 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Put on these things that best reflect the hidden reality of your new identity in Jesus. We're not building an identity, by the way, from the outside in. This is simply instruction on how best to reflect that which is. Those internal hidden realities of life in Christ. It's not mere behavior. Paul is showing us how to best reflect that reality uh, of inseparable connection to Jesus Christ. In verse 12, we're, said, we're told to put on then. Uh, and because we love labels so much, and they're often helpful in some ways, uh, here's a great one for you. Here's a great label to affix to your heart and your mind. And it is God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved. Because you are chosen by God, you are holy. You're pure. You're set apart. You have been gifted. 
that chief and great attribute of God, you are declared by Christ to have met his perfect standard. You're holy. And you are beloved. You're dearly loved by the king of all things. You're adopted. You've been rescued. And you need both, by the way. What good would it be to have been made holy but to remain unloved? And likewise, what good would it be to be loved but remain unholy? As God's chosen ones, you are by his grace the recipient of both. You are holy and beloved. Now in verse 13, then as a result of that, we're to bear with one another and forgive one another. Now, I think this indicates two categories of behavior uh, and interaction. There are things that we are to forbear or bear with and things that we are to forgive. Now, I think of the way my family does things sometimes. Uh, and I say, man, that is, that's weird. Like, did I do those things as a teenager or as a nine-year-old? There are things my wife does and, I'm, and I'll be like, I, I would not have done it that way. Now, it's not sin. It's just weird. <laughs> my, my daughter Beth has a little thing that she, uh, in her room, that's a little plaque thing she drew. It says, I'm not weird. I'm a limited edition. <laughs> but there are strangeness. There's strangeness in others. Ways that, of thinking and doing and behaving that, uh, that we don't resonate with. But we're not to treat those things as sin if they're not sin. We're to bear with those things. Don't treat the strangeness of others as if it were sin. Uh, those are things, Paul says, that you are to put up with. And putting up with that is a way of putting on these things that he's telling us to put on. Now, there is, there are times when people sin against us in small ways or in deeply grievous ways. And so if it's sin, we're not to just put up with that. We're to forgive it, right? And forgiveness doesn't mean I enable you to escape the consequences of your sin, but it does mean in my heart, I let the offense go. I move toward that. Whatever you have done to me is not worse than what was done to Jesus. And I don't have any right to expect better treatment than he got. So who am I then to withhold from you that which Jesus has freely given to me? Let's look at verse uh, 14, which says, uh, and above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Above all these, put on love. In uh, 1 Corinthians 13, the end of the chapter, Paul's famous chapter on love, he says, now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. At some point, faith becomes sight. Jesus returns. And the object of our faith, we will behold with our eyes. Hope will be realized. Those things that we have hoped for will come to pass. And so what will remain is love. 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called to one body, and be thankful. Let let, he says, allow the peace of Christ to rule 
Now, I feel like most of the time my life is very full. And I struggle with feeling like I'm just moving from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, uh, all the time. And so I struggle often to find a sense of peace. But peace in the biblical sense is not outward and circumstantial. It's not something that ebbs and flows, the peace of Christ, that sometimes is there and sometimes is not. The Bible gives me assurance that the peace of Christ is already mine. John 14, 27, Romans 5, 1, Philippians 4, 7. I have the peace of Christ. That's not the issue. The issue is, am I allowing it to rule? In the midst of everything going on, am I choosing, am I determining to rest in Jesus? Because it's not that he's not doing his part. It's that I'm not taking hold of that which is already mine in him. And so am I allowing that which is already in me to have its rightful place and influence in my life? Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It's the same uh, concept here. Let, allow, determine for the word to dwell in you richly. We have the word. We can know the word. Do we give it its rightful place and influence? Do we move toward the word in obedience? Are we doers or merely hearers of the word? Then Paul says that we are to teach and admonish in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I love that that's in there. The modern church is hardly the only church who had opinions uh, about who or how to sing and what songs to sing. Uh, and I think Paul is admonishing these different groups to unity with, this, with the wording here. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Because you've got the Jews, Right? And they're going to be like, oh, we don't need new songs. We've got, we've got the Psalms, so we're just going to sing those. Now, within this congregation, in addition to Jews, you've got uh, Gentile Greeks, uh, cultured, eloquent. We're like, no, let's, let's write some hymns. We'll do 50 verses, bridges, choruses. It's going to be deep and great. And then you've got barbarians who are just like, uh, just give me a chorus we can sing like seven or eight times. On repeat. And Paul says, look, keep the main thing, the main tame. All, all of this stuff, your worship should be tethered to the word of God. But there's room for things in the gathering that are beyond my preference or leaning. Verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I don't know if you picked up on it, but Paul's emphasis these last few verses is really on thankfulness and gratitude. Be thankful with thankfulness, giving thanks to God. Gratitude and thankfulness is a keystone element of who we are in Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I find uh, that as soon as I cease to be thankful, I often cease to be humble. There's a great freedom in godly gratitude. Because in the gospel, man, it's all, it's all gravy. 
right? My identity in Christ compels me to understand that because my life is hidden in him, I can be thankful regardless of circumstance and situation. I'm free to really live. I don't need something from you that you were never meant to provide. Jesus tells me who I am. And so when I gaze upon the Savior seated at the right hand of God, when I consider that he sits crowned there, but but before he was crowned uh, there at the right hand of God, he was crowned with thorns on a cross for my behalf. And so how could I not be thankful? When we consider at some point that Jesus returns, when that happens, there will be only one reason I will be able to bow before him in humble, trembling gratitude. And it will not be because of anything earthly that I've tried to build my identity on. It will be because he has given me my identity. He has called me out. He has chosen me, called me his chosen one, holy and beloved. That's the only reason I will be thankful on that day. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Will you be able likewise on that day to kneel before him in humble, trembling gratitude and and say, say the same? If you know Jesus, as we close this morning, Ephesians 2, 6 tells us that you are raised and seated with him in heavenly places. You are in him. Your life is hidden in him. And until he returns, he bids us to die to self-identity, to put off the old ways, to take up the new, to live out this new reality of who we are in him. Rejoice in that this morning if you know Christ. If you are with us uh, here in the room or online and you do not know Jesus, we'd love to have a conversation with you about it. There'll be some folks uh, up front at the end of the service who would love to pray with you, to speak with you. Uh, You're welcome to fill out the online connect card. You're welcome to, if you're in the chat, to uh, speak to a moderator. We'd love for you to get that straight today because there are a lot of voices trying to tell you who you are and who you should be. But it is only Jesus Christ who has the true right, power, and authority to bestow, form, and shape our identity. Let's pray this morning. Father, would you be pleased to be at work among us, Father, by the the might of your word and by the power of your spirit. Father, to anchor us in who we are in Christ. Lord, to set aside those voices from culture and society, to set aside the voice of our flesh, to set aside the voice of the enemy that clamor to pull us back to the old low ways. Father, would you in your mercy enable us and empower us to set our minds on the things above where Christ is seated at your right hand, that we may gaze in thankful awe And give you thanks, Father, as we navigate uh, a broken world, uh, living out the identity you've given us for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.